Hey y'all, it's Demointe Wesley here, the facilitator of community education with Amplify RJ. I'm so excited to announce that over the course of Black History Month, I'm gonna be facilitating a workshop on the history of Black abolitionist politics and action. We're gonna to get together every Saturday over the course of February to learn about political history of Black abolitionists so that we can deepen and refine our own understanding of systems of anti-Black violence um, and so that we can truly build together a more liberated future for Black people and all people. So come join me. I'm so excited to have you. Bye. This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ. Sign up for our email list and check out our website at AmplifyRJ.com to stay up to date on everything we have going on. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And finally, we'd love it if you left us a rating and review. It really helps us literally amplify this work. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Hey folks, I'm Elise, your producer, and today we are welcoming Eric Butler to the podcast. Eric is recognized for his impactful restorative justice work as a restorative justice practitioner, activist, and educator. He went on to found the Talking Peace model of restorative justice, which is a set of practices and philosophy aimed at building relationships through shared values. Eric talks about circles, calling people in, calling people out, and so much more. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. Eric, welcome to this restorative justice life. Who are you? Um, I am a um, father of three adult children. Adult children is kind of an oxymoron, but um, I have three people that I am responsible for their life. Who are you? I am an activist um, of all kinds of things. Human rights, racial harmony, who are you? I'm a lover. I'm a brand new dog owner. Just got a dog um, two days ago. Who are you? I'm a son and a grandson and a nephew. Who are you? Simple, but very, very hard to um, read. Who are you? Someone that goes against the grain. I'm a fighter. Who are you? I'm an educator. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to get into all the intersections of who you are in those ways in a little bit, but it's always good to start uh, with a check-in. So to the extent that you want to answer the question, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm kind of tired. Like I said, I got a brand new dog. I've been, <laughs> um, I've been trying to, um, to make this dog do everything that I, um, that I imagined he could do in one day. I'm super glad to be talking to you. Some of you might know the name Eric Butler from a documentary that was released a couple years ago um, called Circles, where it details uh, a lot of what went on in Eric's life um, as a restorative justice coordinator in Oakland. Um, you're not in Oakland 
anymore. You've been doing a lot of work around restorative justice uh, since then um, and continue to do it now. But I'm curious, um, you know, you've been doing restorative justice work probably before you even knew the words, quote unquote, restorative justice. Uh, in your own words, how did this get started for you? Um, I, I guess when you frame it that way, um, beforehand, I guess I've been groomed all my life to do the to do restorative justice work. Um, I'm the only son in my generation. Um, I have four sisters and 15 girl cousins. Um, primarily when I was a kid, my responsibility was, and I'm the oldest, so I had to protect mm -hmm. them all the time. And um, that's a lot of drama. So I had to come up with a lot of different ways of, refu of, of um, diffusing um, situations because even if I was a fighter, that's way too many fights to have. Yeah, what did that look like? Uh, what were some of those diffusion strategies? I learned early that if you can make them laugh, you can make them like you, and you can make them listen. Um, so I used um, my sense of humor in ways to, um, to diffuse a lot of situations. Um, when I was a kid, I was really, really popular because I did all of the extracurricular things. I played football and I also sang in the choir, which is an interesting dynamic. Um, I was always, um, always a talker and I always sought justice, even though I didn't have an understanding of what justice was. Yeah, what, is there an example that stands out to you about an example of trying to get to justice? Um, when I was a kid, um, my mother was a single mother. Um, I don't know if she was she wasn't single. I lived in the house with my mother and my grandmother, and my grandmother, my mother, disciplined me with her hands. And um, as far back as I can remember. I would, I got most of those beatings um, trying to explain my case. And sometimes it would make her feel like she wasn't doing a good job as a parent because I would ask a lot of questions. And most times she would just want me to be quiet. And when I found myself in that kind of trouble, I also found myself not able to stop talking. So I wanted to know, I wanted to, I wanted my mother to be able to get to the truth and understand that the discipline strategy that she was using wasn't working. Um, she never changed it. So I guess um, I never received <laughs> justice, except I think that it made her a better grandmother, or maybe she would have just been that type of grandmother anyway. I learned early that justice isn't, isn't, an, isn't an immediate thing. Sometimes it takes the rest of your life to, um, to receive justice. I also learned that justice isn't an external thing. Justice is something that we have inside of ourselves. And that's the reason why when we give vague definitions of justice, although we haven't experienced it that together, we can all agree that justice is that thing. Justice is equity. Of course it is. But how do we know that if we, if we haven't had equity together? Yeah. 
if you were like i know lots of people define justice in different ways and i'm going to ask you for your definition of restorative justice a little bit later but you know you just defined justice as equity right and that's not my definition okay my definition of justice is having the freedom to practice your values Mm. and the, the way i came up with that definition is defining injustice Injustice is having those freedoms snatched away from you. And if that's injustice, justice is having the freedom to have those, um, to practice your values. Whenever we're in a situation and we can look back and say, no, that was a just situation. It had everything to do with everybody sharing collective values. Yeah. What's the situation, like, what was it that led you to that definition of injustice and then, you know, vice versa? Um, so when I think about injustice, I watch a lot of television and a lot of documentaries and stuff. So um, I'm a huge follower of history. Not, I'm not a, I don't study history, but I do follow it. Um, so I watch a lot of documentaries on justice. Um, what comes to mind from that question is the civil rights movement in the 60s. Um, when I first discovered it, as a kid, a um, little fun fact, when I was in the first grade, I played Martin Luther King in the um, Black History play. So I learned a lot about Martin Luther King. I learned more than the other kids learned. I learned more than just the service stuff. And I didn't grow up in a household where we were constantly talking about just well, our politics at all. But when I think about that movement, it's kind of touching that the strategy that Martin Luther King used was some of the bravest um, things, I've, and bravery is definitely one of my core values. And that was one of the most bravest attempts at seeking justice. And when he used his values of bravery and so many other values and other folks could see it, he was able to call them to the movement and have the world participate. Um, in other words, um, and it's kind of it's kind of parallel to what we do in restorative justice is like breaching the levees of um, of our humanity so everybody can um, feel the pain and feel everything and, and also feel like they have stake to do something about it. Yeah. I imagine growing up in New Orleans, right. right, in the South, experiencing all kinds of injustice. I imagine like Dr. King's work was an inspiration where else did you draw inspiration to continue to work for justice? Um, I also had a role model, which kind of separated me from the rest of the, the, the young men that grew up in my, in my environment who wasn't from New Orleans. Now, in New Orleans, it's black and white. And since I'm black, I've, I've done all of the black stuff. And we were in like a box of poverty. And you throw crack in that box and you throw guns and you throw um, miseducation in that box and then you shake the box up and whatever comes out, comes out if you don't have somebody to guide you. I was fortunate enough to be a part of the, um, the Big Brother, Big Sister program and that's where I met my mentor who's still my mentor to this day um, to kind of guide me um, and show me these um, these things about our history and how those things in our history um, feeds the things in our present. 
you know, what were some of the, like those key key learnings and takeaways that he showed you? And is this Ted that we're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah. When I was when I was a young man, the, well, the first thing that comes to mind is when I was a young man, the times that I saw success from other black men, they were drug dealers. And um, and when I say that, it's kind of like saying like, well, being being impoverished, not having means to, to to simple things like automobiles, and then suddenly, this crack epidemic happens, and now these black men that never had an opportunity to shine on the inside can at the very least shine on the outside now. So I saw that um, until I met Uncle Ted. That was all I saw, and I've had and I had. Um, Men in my family that um, that didn't take that route, um, but they never was successful men. Um, they were um, living job to job. Um, jobs didn't last too long. And I remember once, and Uncle Ted worked at um, Loyola University at the Institute of Human Relations. He basically did the same thing that I do now. And I remember once I asked him how much he made. And he said $75 an hour. And I thought that that was ridiculously crazy. I wouldn't do nothing for $75 an hour right now, but this was back in the 80s. And seeing him be successful and making money for um, helping kids like me was just amazing to me. In fact, I thought it was a lie. I didn't think that you can be successful by your good, by your good deeds. You took the the inspiration from him and others um your athletic uh achievements um out of out of new orleans um and i'm and i don't know and so um you know i i know most of our listeners don't know how did that lead you to the restorative justice work that you're doing now what led to the restorative justice work that i'm doing now is hunger when i moved to oakland at right after Hurricane Katrina, we didn't know how long it would last. Um, we didn't know when, when or if we were ever going to be able to go back home. So it was kind of um, jumping into a double dutch trying to figure out, do I stay, do I, do I even start building a career here? Growing up in the environment that I grew up in and being um, the only boy and having to learn how to take care of your family and that being your responsibility, I didn't want to take anything from anybody. So I didn't want to, um, I didn't want any, um, I didn't I, we, I didn't get FEMA support and really didn't want it, didn't expect it, didn't even think it was real. But what I would do is I would stand in front of Catholic charities, which is where they was giving folks clothes and money and that kind of stuff. And I would never ask for anything. And I would just stand out there and one day one of the directors that worked in Catholic Charities came out and personally asked me to take some of these things. And I, I think we had a conversation and she probably thought that I was really charismatic and she offered me a job. And the job that she offered me was helping other Hurricane Katrina survivors. Now that was the first job that I had gotten. Um, the funds for that job, as you can imagine, ran out immediately. But there was another job in the pipeline called um, Crisis Response. This job was a job that nobody wanted. 
you should where you show up at the scene of a murder and assess the scene and find out what the needs were in the community. And you try, and you know, I will take that information back to Catholic Charities and whatever things they could do to help with those needs, I would offer those needs back. Sometimes it was paying for the funeral. Sometimes it was having grief and healing circles, which is the first time I ever heard of circles. Um, so I would bring those circles to elementary schools. And it wasn't, it wasn't done really good, but I was consistent. I always showed up at work. That job turned into me being in meetings with the police department. And um, one day I was in a meeting with the police department. I raised an issue and that issue was the way they notify families that their loved ones had been murdered. I thought it was very insensitive. They would laugh, they would tell jokes sometimes. And not knowing um, why they would do that, I foolishly questioned them. And, and one of them said, well, if you think you can do a better job, we'll see if we can um, have you show up at the scene with us and you can tell the parents. And so I started doing that. And it was some very heartbreaking stuff. In fact, my last day, I had, um, I went to a family's house and. And I can never forget it because the kid that had lost his life, his name was Eric. So I had to tell Eric's mother that her son was, so I show up at her house and she knows that something is wrong because there's police with me. Her assumption is that her son has been murdered and she's screaming his name, but she's screaming the wrong name. So that the name that she's screaming isn't in my file. So I had a sense of relief, like, well, maybe this is one mother that I can give good news to and say, well, this isn't your son. We've made a mistake. But she was screaming the name of her good son, who she didn't expect to be in that type of trouble. And um, well, well, her, yeah, 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 her, her bad son. But it wasn't her bad son. It was her good son. So, um, and she was, she was so heartbroken um, and I couldn't deal with the emotional um, stress of it all. And I, and I, I just stopped working. And um, Fanya Davis had heard about me and I don't know if it was that particular thing, but I know that she was in association with um, Catholic Charities and she was starting a new organization called Joke, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. And I was her first hire. And I think it was just based on word of mouth. So I was extremely lucky. Yeah. You know, thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the things that I observed watching the documentary um, Circles, which, you know, we'll definitely have linked in the show notes for folks to check out for themselves, is the depth to which you as a person, Eric the person, um, put yourself into this work and, and, you know, hearing this story, um, just like further solidifies, you know, when, when you're about something, you're about something and you give it your all. The, the other thing that, um, occurred to me and it was in the doc and just occurred to me both as we're having this conversation and as I've observed you from afar, um, 
in this restorative justice world is that all of that takes a toll, right? An emotional and a physical toll. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how you were able to identify, like if you were able to identify that in the moment, because I know it's been like a constant uh, evolution of like, I can't throw all of myself into this at all times. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you talked about like you had to quit your job at that moment because like you couldn't do that. But like that, that's not something that is, that's not like a lesson that you learned and like, you know, it was taken care of then. And like, you've been good ever since at like balancing self-care and doing this like uh, deep, intense emotional work. How have you, how did you identify it then? How have you continued to navigate it now? Well, I'm still working on that part of myself, to be honest. Um, I cry every single day. Um, and not necessarily out of sadness, but I do know that I have some um, compound trauma that I've packed down and it slowly, it slowly seeps out. Um, back then, it was situational. Just like everything else, like any reason to, to, to quit a job, you're in the moment and it just, feel, it just feels bad. And being in that moment, knowing that I had other opportunities, the thing that stops us from quitting jobs when we know we should, it's the same thing that stops us from ending relationships. Um, it's the fact that I don't believe that there's something else. And when I started doing um, social, these, this social work, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. um, it started feeling like there's nothing else. Well, well, it started feeling like there's, this is all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I'll always be able to find a job doing something in this lane. So um, quitting just was, since I've been doing restorative justice work, I've quit. Well, I've only quit once, but I've been fired like three or four times. I guess in the moments of quitting, right? Like you can correct me if I'm misassuming. There have been other moments where you might not have quit, but you've like taken dramatic steps back to take care of yourself and a need that you were identifying. What, how do you identify those I seldom, moments for I yourself? I seldom identify them. Other people around me. Mm. Um, the, if I've done anything right in restorative justice, it's my relationships. Um, these people are amazing. And I think people are amazing once they tap into that themselves, that, that justice within, within themselves. And I've, and I've connected with these people and they, and they um, make sure that I take really good care of myself. Um, to the best that they can, stop me from um, going too far. I go to, I go all the way. Since restorative justice isn't something that you do, it's hard to turn it off. So I never turn it off. Somebody has to physically stop me from, from doing it. Yeah. Do you fight them? Yes. <laughs> I seldom win. <laughs> and, and, and it's the way I set up my friend group. It's on purpose. Um, my team, they're all women. And it's kind of like a thing in, in my, um, when, I, when I was young, it's like um, I was surrounding myself. I didn't surround myself, but I was surrounded by women that made choices for me. And it was comfortable for me. And now all of my, everybody that's on my team and they're really strong and, um, and, and pig-headed and one of them's right there. Um, so they, um, they fight back. And and um and I lose most of those battles, but but I do fight. Um 
And um, I try to make it make sense. But the thing that makes sense the most is no matter how bad I want to do this work, if I'm not around to do this work, I won't be able to do this work. And that makes more sense and it overrides anything that I have to say. And it's usually like somebody's got to do it right now. So if I'm not going to do it, you're definitely going to do it. So they'll do it. Yeah, it's the sense of urgency that um, we we fall into a lot of time. And like I'm identifying that for myself as well. Um, I think the other thing that why I'm personally like so curious about having this conversation with you is, you know, I'm on the precipice of fatherhood, right? Um, of, you know, probably about a month when this conversation airs or about two months from right now. Um, and, you know, thinking about like, there is so much work to do. And like, as I was watching you um, give so much to uh, the students at, at, uh, at the school and in the doc, um, while also simultaneously balancing being, uh, your, your son's, uh, sole parent in the household. Um, like there's, I'm, I'm concerned for myself about like that balance of that work. It's a hard balance. Um, and what's harder about that balance is you're not going to be able to mathematically figure it out going to happen spontaneously where you um you prioritize um and you prioritize differently depending on um who raised you and the things that you've learned throughout the time um i've done things so differently than my parents did um which is kind of scary because that means there's absolutely no roadmap so like raising my kids was was a was a blank sled, and I did some really really cool things, but I fucked up sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I always take uh, some of my friends and I joke like, you know, your kids are gonna end up in therapy for one reason or another. Like you you've messed them up one way or another, but like you know, being present and doing your best is, is all you can do. Um, and I take comfort in that, and it's like still don't want to mess up like urgency perfectionism are still things that i'm working on um i mentioned i mentioned the school that you had worked at um you know from coming to our joy um you did lots of different things within um restorative justice in the oakland world uh can you highlight some of those for the folks listening all right so when i when i was hired i was hired with the understanding that naacp or something that were suing the school district because they were suspending too many black boys, which was interesting to me, um, that, that we were going to do something in reaction of little black boys doing something. I immediately saw the um, white supremacy in that idea. So I wasn't turned on by that idea that we were reacting to what black boys were doing. Um, I didn't agree with that notion. Um, and the way I got my training, I went to a Mennonite college in Virginia. Um, in theory, it was great. But I found myself being taught how to talk to black and brown boys by white women, who most, who most more than all, more times than not, 
weren't even from this country. So while the theory was tight, the content was a, a little bit off. So I had to think about how can I take the theory and put it into a different context. At the school that's highlighted in the, um, in the documentary, on my first day of school, I remember feeling very, very uncomfortable and wanting to do something different. Understanding that the foundation of restorative justice was relationships, I thought that if I go outside and greet the kids or the young people as they walk in, that that would give me a leg up on um, building these relationships and building these connections. But there were um, other teachers doing the exact same thing, but in a different way, because we're all kind of standing together. And I remember one teacher saying, hey, you're the restorative justice guy. And they called me the restorative justice guy, uh, which meant you're not a teacher. You're not, you're, you're not faculty. You're not, um, you're something else, like, like you're support staff. And that's exactly how they treated me on the first and day. And paid you. Yeah, you, you're another. And we're not sure about you. But this particular teacher was absolutely sure about me. She read me, and she read me wrong. Or she read restorative justice wrong. It's like, we know all about restorative justice. We've read both of the books that was written about it. So we have to know everything. And here's the thing. It's a good concept, but it's not going to work for all of the kids. Now, this is the first conversation that I'm having with the people that I'm going to be working with. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't acknowledge her. Um, I, didn't, I didn't talk to her. In fact, I didn't even look at her. But she continued to talk. In her rant, she began to tell me the kids who weren't going to be able to benefit from restorative justice as they were walking into the school. Um, and... Um, Ironically, all of the kids that she thought wouldn't benefit, they all look like me. Um, and when I do trainings, I tell folks to search for a why before they start doing the work. Because before that moment, I didn't have a why. And my why became because she pissed me off and I wanted, I wanted to prove her wrong. As she was talking, she spoke about this young man who had this sense of urgency of stopping as he walked to school smoking a blunt. And she completely read this dude in my ear. She talked about his, his home life. She talked about having him in the eighth grade and how he wasn't a good student then and he's not a good student now. And she also said that I am going to send him to your classroom every single day. Now she's telling me what type of classroom I'm going to have. So basically, it's going to be like a punishment room. So I immediately knew that I had to dispel that idea that I'm going to be punishing people. Um, but she was right. She sent that boy to my classroom, and I tried my best to build a relationship with him for about a week. And I just kept getting cussed out every day. And I had to, and I had to put my armor on and just take it, and he would cuss me out every day religiously. And um, one day he broke and he said, do you know why they don't like me? And I'm like, no, but I am all ears. So he told me that the math teacher particularly didn't like the fact that he can do algebra 
without doing the formula. So like he could just look at it and come up with a number. And so it makes sense to him to write all of that other stuff when he just knew the answer. And they would argue. We, we became really close and he was sent to my classroom every single day when he wasn't suspended. Because they were still suspending kids at that time. So when he wasn't suspended, he would be in my classroom. And sometimes he would get suspended to my classroom. Um, he would do all his work and all of the tests. He had the best grades in the school. So he's our valedictorian. The thing that he's missing is seat time, which is their responsibility. And they have to pay a price if he doesn't have seat time. So they have to give him his grades. So this kid graduated valedictorian. Um, and he has to give the valedictorian speech. And he wasn't a man of many words, two of them. And he said both of them as he accepted his diploma. And um, that was the moment I realized how important it was to be in relationships. Just this kid. I remember us having a conversation about math, algebra particularly, because we talked about algebra to the point where I was telling them how much I hated it when I was in high school and hate it now and don't know nothing about it. Um, and he said, why do we need it anyway? It's like, I literally walk over dead bodies to and from school every day. How is algebra gonna help me with my life? And I didn't have an answer for him. But I asked him, until we find out how you're gonna be able to use algebra, would you do it for me? And he said he'll do it for me because we have, we have a relationship. And that kid taught me, and the, and the other kids taught me more about restorative justice than the time I spent in Virginia, all of the um, classes that I've been to, learning how to do circles and that stuff. Being in those type, um, being in relationship with those kids for real taught me how to do restorative, right, well, well, taught me how to do restorative justice, but not be restored. We talk about all the time on this podcast, how, you know, restorative justice isn't, I think it can be both, right? It is the, the description of a process where we're saying what happened, who was impacted and how, and how do you make things as right or as right as possible. Um, but it's also that way of being, that way of being deeply interconnected with people. I think there are limits to what, um, you know, you've, you've experienced like there are limits to like how much of yourself you can pour into relationships with people because the first relationship you have is the relationship with yourself, right? And if that relationship isn't right or able to function, you can't do any of those other things. But the way that we are teaching restorative justice often gets reduced to the thing for the bad kids, right? Or the alternatives to punishment, it generously. Um, and that can't all be on one person in a school, right? I'm thinking back to uh, what that looks like in the documentary when, you know, you're having a conversation with the principal. She was like, I'm on board. I got your back. We're going to do this. We're going to win. <laughs> We're going to win them over all the other uh, teachers in the school. Because, you know, to, to her point, um, it can't all be on you. You can't be like, oh, restorative justice. Send them to Mr. Butler's room, right? It can't. It's got to be like, what is the relationship that I, as a teacher, have with the student, right? Like, why couldn't um, they be like, hey, I understand that you don't understand the uh, application of algebra to your daily life. Can you do it for me, right? It's because they didn't do that proactive relationship building with that person and seeing them for 
uh, who they were as opposed to like, oh, that's the kid that just doesn't show his work on math. Mm -hmm. He's a problem for me. Um, how in your time working in schools, how have you been able to bring people, teachers, um, into that relational way of being, um, as opposed to like, oh, just the alternative to punishment. All right. So I'm just like the average American. I resist connection just like everybody else. I'm in the grocery store pretending like I'm on my phone when I see people I know, just like everybody else. Um, so it's constantly working on that muscle that does what we're supposed to do. Like we're, we're, we're built to, to connect with each other. Um, so it's a constantly working on that muscle um, to connect. And when, when you're working, when, when, you're, when you're doing that, it's kind of like working on any, any muscle. Like it's kind of like um, doing any kind of exercise where you're trying to manipulate your body to do something. It's the same way with the relationships. Like I am trying to manipulate people that don't have a, a, an already set attraction to my humanity. So I try to do something, and we all do it. Um, I love women and physically, like there's a type of woman that I like. And if I see that woman and she goes to church, suddenly I go to church. Um, if it was easier than that, I wouldn't even brush my teeth in the morning. If it wasn't for the fact that women appreciate uh, an apartment, I wouldn't pay $1,700 to stay somewhere. I live on the street. Um, I just said that we, um, even Miss Still, and it's funny you use Miss Still because Miss Still was the champion of restorative justice in that school, but not until we built a relationship. The first words that she said to me is, I am the queen of suspensions. So she didn't have a restorative bone in her body. She had been a principal for 20 plus years and her tactic was always suspension. If you come to my office, you're gonna leave sorry. Manipulating relationships, and people don't like the word manipulation. And that's, and that's cool, use another word if you want to. But my word is manipulation, it just sounds fresher than, to me. I remember there was a fight that was happening right in front of her office. This is another example. She comes outside of her office and she's suspending everybody. Teachers are getting suspended. She's and, and she's like she's she's losing control. But as she's losing control, I'm watching her and I'm watching her say key things that make me know who she is or make me um, assume who she is. She said words like "Lord have mercy" and and "Please Jesus" and all that kind of stuff. So my assumption was mixed. Those those words mixed with her accent that she's a black woman from the she's a black Christian woman from the south, which is which is well within my wheelbarrow because that's everybody in your family. Yeah, yeah, or in the neighborhood you grew up in. Right, right. Although I'm not a Christian, I know Christian lingo, and so I just I just asked her, does she want to pray about it? And of course she does. So we went to our office and I led the prayer in a way that Baptist preachers lead the prayer. And um, I'm not even closing my eyes, mind you. I'm just watching her. And as I'm praying, she's saying, yes, Lord. And I'm like, I got you. And um, 
that was the birth of our relationship. Me pretending to believe in the way that she believes. Now, as we continue this relationship, we're going to have to, to fix that up. I'm gonna have to fix that. Um, but what I need right now, I need you to listen to me. I don't need you to stop suspending people. I need you to listen to my story. And if you listen to my story, we can come to some kind of agreement. Most times when restorative justice isn't appreciated, it's because the person that you're trying to convince isn't listening to you. They're waiting on their turn to talk. Hmm. And the thing that fosters the idea of a real conversation is relationships. So I had to have her in a relationship so she can so she can champion restorative justice. I couldn't do it by myself. She had the power to make teachers be in circle. Now that's not restorative at all, but it's a start. Um, what usually happens is teachers die out. Um, and we live in a culture where our ego lead the way. So once I say I don't believe in that thing, there's nothing that you can do that's gonna turn me away from that unless you can manipulate those relationships. Um, by my third year at Bunch, we had gotten rid of all of the teachers that wasn't down with restorative justice and recruited new ones. In fact, I was also doing trainings all around the country. I had folks from Texas move to, um, to Oakland just so they can work at Bunch. And that's just the relationship. That's the power of relationships. And it doesn't hurt to be a little charismatic too. For sure. But like, you know, we're talking about that, that point of connection, right? And like, I think people might bristle like, oh, you pretended to be a Christian in order to, you know, right? But like, think about the people in your life. You pretend to like sports to connect with whoever. You pretend to like a certain type of music to connect. And like, maybe you do find some connection point with there and that becomes an authentic thing. But like, what's important at the end of the day is that relationship uh, with people and, you know, where that can lead and what benefit that can do for not only you and them, but for the community at large and the way that that's impactful. I'm thinking, uh, I'm th I think a lot about how to further amplify restorative justice work, right? That's the name of my company. And so many of the things that I see in marketing world <laughs> um, are around senses of urgency and restorative justice is not, like while it is urgent, like we can't go about it in an urgent way, right? This work takes time, it takes relationship building. And I'm wrestling with, can I use urgency and scarcity to market restorative justice just to get people in the door? Yeah. I think that you have to, um, and you would be right. You wouldn't be lying. This is urgent. Now it's gonna take time, but we need to move on this right now because the examples, now I've had people turn their nose up at the fact, like telling that story about um, pretending to be a Christian to have a relationship with Miss Steele. Now here's the results. That year, no kids were suspended. 100% of the kids graduated. The following year, no kids were suspended. 100% of the kids were graduating. And the, the next seven years after that, those were my results. And if I had to pretend that, um, if I had to pretend that I love Satan to get that, I'll pretend. Um, and, if, and if the God that you love truly is the God that you say he is, he understands my heart. And I'm going to go to heaven with y'all. 
<laughs> what was her reaction when you finally uh, came clean about that? She knew it. She knew it. She, she said she knew it. She, she knew I was full of shit. And um, she used to call me Jody. And um, I didn't know what Jody was, but Jody was a man. They called Jody when she was younger. She said they, they would nickname men that would um, manipulate women, Jody. They would be attractive to the woman and they would woo the woman. So she would call me Jody. So she knew that I was, that I was full of shit. But she also knew that in that moment, that was exactly what she needed. And I didn't need it, but she needed it. And um, if I can, if I can supply you with one of your needs as a Christian, why don't you give me something that I need in return? Let's do the whole Christian thing. And I love arguing with Christians anyway. So like, in fact, <laughs> if, 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 if your job as a Christian is to lead me to the fold, lead me, stop judging me. Because if you judge me and shame me, it's gonna make me stop talking to you. Or not stop talking, I'll keep talking, but I'll stop listening. Yeah. If you wanna lead me to the fold, convince me. Your For job sure. is to convince me, my job is to prove that you're wrong. And let's just have a conversation about it. Let's pass the talking piece so we won't interrupt each other. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm thinking about, I don't know that I wanna go like too far down, um, that because I I'm imagining that's gonna bring up um, your your experience with molestation in the church um, d- down the road, and I think that's an important part of your story. And I know that you've told it before. In, in the context of this conversation, it's not exactly where I want to go, um, but we can. All of that is acknowledged for sure. Um, and thank you for being a person who is who shared that and been vulnerable with that. Um, you are not in Oakland anymore. Um, what are the things that you have been working on in the restorative justice world since? All right. Mostly what we've been doing, especially since the p- pandemic, folks have not been face to face. So when you're, when you're working um, virtually, it's easier to be in conflict. It's easier to, um, to say what's on your mind while you're sitting behind this, um, this computer. Um, so people are in conflict and people are looking for people that can help them um, mediate their conflicts. So I've been doing a lot of work around conflicts. Um, the world has been in a conflict um, with, and we like to criminalize everything. So um, we've been in a conflict with the pandemic. And the problem with it, with the, what us being in conflict with the pandemic is we don't have anybody to criminalize and we try. That's not, for, that's not because we didn't try. We tried to blame China, well, we didn't, but our leader at the time tried to blame a whole country, tried to blame China for it. So like we've been having intentional conversations around how we're going to be together um, and anti-blackness and racism. So most of the work that I've gotten from the pandemic to the present is around race and, um, and just white women um, afraid to be called racist and Karen, um, they're very offended by that. So they're trying to figure out a way that they can have a conversation. Restorative justice is the way to, um, to hold that space. So I've been getting a lot of folks hiring me for their um, companies. Like here recently, since I live in Austin now, there's been people that know 
about restorative justice that are um where we're going to be doing some work with the district attorney's office where they're um diverting cases to restorative justice as opposed to sending um young folks to um juvenile hall so that's one thing that we're working on this and i think that's probably the biggest project but, but primarily we've been working on and last year we did we did some work um I was a I was a coordinator on online coordinator at a school last year, so we've been doing everything that we could possibly do um, in restorative justice. Like if somebody needs it, if somebody asks for a training, we'll do it. We'll train your dog restoratively if you got the money. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, and you know, where do people um, engage with y'all? Is that through We Are Talking Peace? Yeah. And we'll definitely have those things uh, linked in the show notes for people. You know, as we're thinking about continued growth through the pandemic, because it's not over and beyond, how do you want to continue to grow in this work? I think, I think that we have, I think that we're in the United States, we're beginning to have these important conversations because we don't have a choice. Uh, we're running out of lies to tell, so um, we we have to have this conversation. Where where I hope I and talking piece fit in, 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 into that um, conversation is we'd like to um, to lead some of these conversations because they stop at a certain point and and it just stops. Um, as a country, we need to heal. Um, it's been a long time coming. Um, and in um, celebration of Black History Month, this one month that we're given, there's a lot of talk that needs to happen around race. We're disconnecting the way that we do. Um, this thing with um, CRT, for example, where CRT isn't even taught in schools, the, um, the legs of it, just talking about race, there are folks that don't even want to have the uncomfortable conversation. So as an organization, we want to encourage people to have that conversation and it's hard, but it's only hard because at some point people are going to feel like I'm being too vulnerable and I'm giving away pieces of myself and I don't know what you're going to do with them. And on the other side, it's I'm scared that you might shame me. So we could take those two things out of the conversation and, and, if, we're, and if there's a talent, we've been able to do that taking shame and um and the fear of being vulnerable out of those um conversations and we've been able to have great conversations um we're not we don't always agree but we at least have a really good conversation and i know that they i know it's going to work and i just i just hope that we can become um illuminated enough that people will see talking peace as a um as a vehicle to have these important conversations and hire us so we can eat. Yes, ab- absolutely. Um, food is important. Eating is important. Shelter is important. And I think one of the things that I've thought a lot about over the last few days, weeks, months is the tension of, you know, relationship with yourself make sure that you're setting those boundaries around your time um but like you can't self your you can't self-care your way out of oppression yeah 
right? Um, and how how do we balance both like that internal work, those practices that will continue to sustain us, and like working for change um, externally, communally? Um, th there's so much in there. Um, I want to transition shortly into the questions that everybody answers when they come onto this podcast. But is there anything else that you feel like that's been unsaid around these ideas of restorative justice, racial justice, um, and all that? You're, you're the pro, man. I'm just following your lead. All right. Um, so I told you earlier um, that everyone who comes here uh, gives us a definition of restorative justice. So in your own word, restorative justice is? So restorative justice is a way of, of, of finding out what is our common values and how do we use those values to get the things that we need and want from our community. Love that. Um, as you've been doing this work, what's been an oh shit moment and what did you learn from it? It's, it's all around adults um, that somehow we're going to be able to change the culture. And when I see it not happening, when I see it happening um, with, the, with the young people, it's like, oh my God, we've been doing it, the, we've been doing it wrong the whole time. Um, in fact, there was a, um, a smart Alec, Alec um, news reporter, probably from the New York Times, go through the records and she says something like, I see that you guys haven't suspended anybody in like seven years. Are you guys just not suspending or is the behavior changing? And I actually thought about it. And the answer is the adults absolutely change their behavior. Um, and once the adults change their behavior, the kids follow suit. The kids have been acting like the adults the whole time. We've been suspending the kids, but we should have been suspending the adults. If that if we're going punitive, there's a lot of teachers and, and principals that should have been fired a long time ago. But instead, what we do is we do that, we do it to the kids. So like we spend them, we fire them, we kick them out of their own communities. The lives that's been saved is like it's some I have so many stories that's been recorded of beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stories. And as I sit back and I watch those stories a thousand times in every training and have people stand up and applaud, they're not really good stories because it's one student, it's one school. And in, and in the meantime, we have a nation of, of young people that are getting what they've always gotten. And the people that lead those kids are hoping for different results even though they're doing the same thing that they did yesterday. And, and that's dangerous. So like, so like while Dion graduated, the, the kid that I was telling you about earlier and went to an Ivy League college, there's another Dion that goes to jail in that same situation. And that's the urgency that you were speaking of. Um, now we have to be urgent. And in our urgency, we may, we may, save the lives of two or three families. But if we keep doing the work and we have other people doing the work, that number grows and grows and grows. And if we if we stop, the work stops, we're right back where, where we started. And, and that's very scary. I mean, I think that speaks a lot to, like this can't just belong in schools, this belongs everywhere, right? You know. 3.2 million teachers in public school, right? 48 million uh, students, you know, 15 to one, you know, 
they're, they're, I do think like if all 3.2 million teachers had a radical um, education around restorative justice and um, an attitude shift towards relationship and, you know, they were incentivized to do so and compensated better than they're being compensated right now, like things would absolutely be different. And that still wouldn't solve all of society's problems because this work belongs in so many places. I always say that the moment you feel like we got this thing down pat, restorative justice has already worked. That's also the moment you realize that you have not been doing restorative justice. You've been doing something else. The moment you don't have anything else to do, you're not doing restorative justice. Mm. Or you're not living restorative. You're not living a restorative a restorative life because you just had a goal and that was it. So suspension, ending suspensions wasn't my personal goal. I didn't really care. I didn't care if the school system got sued by, by the, um, the Office of Civil Rights. I didn't care. Mm. Um, I started caring about it when I noticed that we were able to impact not only that one student, but also the families that have been um, harmed by this system. And we were able to um, have the parents be partners with the teachers in their child's education because they were in a relationship. Um, and, 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 t- and parents are able to tell teachers the reason why I never answer your phone call, because your phone call tells me that I'm a bad parent. And teach teachers to not only call when the kid does something bad, but when the kid is doing something good, which is most of the time. As a parent yourself, right? I'm just thinking back to you getting calls when Trey, your son, mm-hmm. um, was getting in trouble at school, right? How would that have changed your relationship with Trey and that school if you had gotten those uh, positive calls as well? Well, that wouldn't have been the important change. The important change would have been the relationship that Trey had with the school. So if mm-hmm. Trey's um, relationship with the school is different, Trey and I relationship is different because I'm getting something that I want from him and he's getting something that he wants. And instead of want, I want to say need. He needs from the school. And we're all acting as partners in this relationship. Um, it was a dysfunctional relationship though. Um, and For sure. And even if it's a three-way relationship, if like you said, if there is, if you don't have a good relationship with yourself, it's hard to have a good relationship with anybody else. So um, we internalize these um, dysfunctional relationships and we also have dysfunctional relationships with ourselves. And I treat them like, um, and, and how do you do that? Like, cause you gotta be with yourself. You can't like, you can't divorce yourself. So you just have to, um, you have to re get to know yourself. Like you have to um, recommit to yourself. Like this is who I am now. These are the things that I don't like about myself. These are the things that I wanna keep. And you keep you have to keep on doing that, and that's the reason why long term marriages work. That that are long term, most of them don't work. But the one the reason why they don't work is because we don't reconnect. We don't we don't um, what they call it um, renew our vows. And if we do renew our vows, it's just a pageantry. If I'm renewing my vows with myself, it's internal, and y'all don't even see it. It happens when I say. I am not gonna stop myself from crying. I'm gonna feel this thing and think about what it is that made me feel that way. And also how can we fix it so other folks won't feel that way? 
Um, yeah. I think about um, values and this idea of empathy. So like empathy is always a value, but folks seldom want to practice it. And the way I prove it is like, who are the, who's the person that you find it most difficult to have empathy for? So for me, it's Donald Trump. Now, how can I not empathize with somebody with whom I have no idea who this man is? All I know is his acts. And acts should be way easier to empathize with than your person. I can empathize with somebody that I like, no matter how how bad or egregious the thing they did. But an act. So like I have to try to find a way to um to rehumanize myself and become a better person. That means I'm gonna have to empathize with the hardest people. I'm gonna have to try to build a relationship with people that have opposing ideas. That's the work. The work isn't um, going into a school and everybody saying, yeah, we're on board with restorative justice. The work is finding out who's not. If there's one person that's not on board, our job is to manipulate that relationship. Find the ways to invite folks in okay. to this work. Find the connections. Find the points, right? All all the different words to to get that. And I think like to something that you said earlier, right? If you don't, you will be evaluated out of your job, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, right. And like that's like a manipulation point. Uh, beautiful. Uh, you get to sit in circle with four people, living or dead. Who are they, and what question do you ask the circle? So I watch a lot of TV. So like when you just said that, um, the first thing I thought about is John Bonet Ramsey and her parents, because I just watched a um, documentary about them yesterday. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Tupac. All these people don't have to be dead. All right. Um, okay. And um, and I will. Um, I think I probably should go white guy. Um, Donald Trump. What is the question you ask that circle? Okay, shoot. We are in the year 2050 and all of our dreams have come through, come true. How did we get there from here? Oh, I love this. I love that question because you don't know, uh, but what I do is now ask you that question, Eric. So we are now in the year 2050. All of our dreams have come true. How did we get there? Um, intentional relationship building. Um, we had we had a lot of difficult conversations. Um, we told the truth, and I don't like truth. And the reason why I don't like truth is because whenever truth shows itself, the people that's the 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 audience does not. Um, give a soft landing for truth. So what I'm imagining is that now there's a soft landing place for truth. In America, we um, we lie to ourselves so we can feel comfortable with the truth that we imagine. Um, so we'll tell ourselves lie after lie after lie, just so we can be comfortable. And what I mean, and the example I can give is, um, Slavery, like um, we'll, as Americans, we'll lie about about 
the the trap the, the, the tragic situation that and as black people, um, of course white people do because they don't want to be connected to the the wrong side of history, but black people either. Um, some of our own people sold us to um to slavery, and you could call it indentive servitude or whatever it is. It's still like one of the biggest sins ever committed. Um, I think that there would have to be some changes in our faith community where we're not so, um, I think that people need that faith and that hope, hope and faith is kind of the same thing to me. Um, I think people need that hope so much so that they'll pay for it. Um, and I think that we need to be more inclusive in our faith communities. We, we, we say certain people are allowed. In fact, in fact, certain people are an abomination. Um, so I think we, we fix the faith community. We have more intentional conversations about hard things. Um, we allow what we've never allowed before um, and what I mean by that is we allow women and particularly brown, black and brown women to do their thing um, because they're so much better than us in so many ways. And we just block them all the time. And I think that there's, there's, there's becoming a revelation of more and more black women doing things and, and leading the way um, and, and teaching us how to be better people. Um, I think that... Um, we, instead of having a, a, a football draft, we have a, we have a teacher draft <laughs> where the teachers make the most money. Like you get first round draft pick for being an algebra teacher based on your performance as a human being and you pay them the most money. And then and football players make $30 an hour. That'll make more football players want to be teachers instead of the other way around. Those are some beautiful steps. Yeah. Sorry, say that again. I'm just thinking. I just started thinking out loud. This teacher draft. <laughs> I can, I can, I can see these teachers um, waiting at home for their names to be called. <laughs> Man, what what a world! What a world! Um, what is one thing, a mantra, or affirmation that you want everyone listening to know? Find something truly worth dying for then live for it. Um, who's one person I should have on this podcast and you have to help me get them on. All right. Ooh. CC Jordan. Um, right. Celia Jordan moved from Austin to Oakland with me. And she has also moved back to Austin from Oakland with me. She's working on her um, PhD or something. She's, she is, she is the restorative justice mind. Um, she actually studies this work in a real way. She's very collegiate. I don't understand half the shit she be saying. Um, but she's really, really smart and really, really dope. And um, she's a queer black woman, and um, and she's got a lot to say. In fact, she's writing her um, what's the name of that thing? Dis dissertation on restorative justice, and a lot about how how it's been um interwoven into um, the same system that our school system is, which is a white supremacist system. 
and it's, it's some really complex work and, it, and it's real beautiful so i'll be looking forward to that uh that introduction uh, and then finally we we mentioned a uh, talking piece already but how can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported yeah um just through um i think that our talent is trainings um have a training with us and um don't don't lean on the fact that you've already been trained because once you have a training with us, you're going to feel like you've never been trained before. So one Beautiful. way to support us is to, um, to support your school by um, getting more tools for your tool belt to, um, to do this work. And of course, have a budget when you do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time, your stories, your wisdom. Um, there's so many ways that people can continue to engage in your work and uh, y'all know that those are already going to be linked in the show notes um, until next time when we have another conversation with another restorative justice practitioner uh, take care be safe we'll see you next week thank you eric there's so much that we can learn from this episode and one of the big things that i pulled away was that eric often calls people into this work and part of calling people into this work is being able to call people out um, with his example with his school, I think that he was able to really call someone out and at the same time calling people in and using empathy to find reasons to connect to people that you don't necessarily want to connect with, that can create a relationship that you wouldn't think could be created. So that's why it's so important to use empathy and to use empathy towards people that you don't necessarily want to be in relationship with in the first place. Because who knows, you could actually find a really important common ground by making that step to call people in and call people out. If you want to try to call someone into this work who is not normally in the restorative justice world, I would suggest send them the link to this podcast. Then they can learn so much more, just like you did today, from Eric. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. Or if you're old school, tell a friend. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, signing up for a community gathering, workshop, or course. So many options. Links to everything in the show notes. Or on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.